You're listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network on BingeMedia.net. And now, the Binge Aftertaste. a little bit of everybody's blood we're gonna find out who's the thing watching norris in there gave me the idea that maybe every part of him was a whole every little piece was an individual animal with a built-in desire to protect its own life you see when a man bleeds it's just tissue the blood from one of you things won't obey when it's attacked it'll try and survive crawl away from a hot needle say welcome to the Binge Movie Aftertaste, The Thing Retrospective Series. You gotta be fucking kidding. Join Garrett. He must be over eight feet long. Matt. Poor baby, you're starting to lose it, aren't you? And the returning Mick Duffy. Fuck you too! As they look at all three films based on the 1938 novella, Who Goes There? Written by John W. Campbell, Jr. No arterial structure indicated. 1951's The Thing from Another World. May I suggest that we spread out and try to determine the size and shape. The John Carpenter 1982 remake, The Thing. I'm going to hide this tape when I'm finished. If none of us make it, at least there'll be some kind of record. And whatever the hell they call that 2001 film, well, The Thing. Space is encased in some type of amniotic sac. Is The Thing from Another World the oldest movie the aftertaste has ever covered? Holy cats. Is Carpenter's film as classic as its reputation? Maybe we'll just warm things up a little around here. Is Goudreau really an alien? Now in bitter new father mode. I don't know what the hell's in there, but it's weird and pissed off, whatever it is. We test the blood to all these questions and many more, all coming up courtesy of Binge Media. Let's do it. The Thing, released October 14th, 2011. Budget on this was $38 million, box office $31.5 million, ouch, and this is directed by Matthias Van Heineken Jr. Mick, this is coming out in 2011, do you have any interest whatsoever in seeing it? No, no, I, I remember seeing the poster when it first started growing up in cinemas, you know, in the mm-hmm. weeks before it was released, and just sort of shrugging and not caring. You know, it's the, um, 
and maybe the least anticipated uh, of that sort of wave of prequels and uh, reboots that we had around then, because there seemed to be so little chance of it having anything interesting to say or add. And also, of course, because it's released and been delayed so many times. Matt, what about you, sir? I mean, all three of us gave that last movie such high marks. Um, We kind of previewed this at the end of the last film, but let's go into this. How were you feeling going into this particular version, 2011? Going into the screening, I was not especially excited, but when it was first conceived and the original writer was attached, Ronald B. Moore, uh, most people know from Battlestar Galactica and a lot of Star Trek. I was very excited because I'm always a proponent of getting talented writers to do remakes because they're more likely to bring their own perspective, especially people who respect the genre. I'd never heard of this director before, and I don't think I've heard from him since, especially if you look at the box office returns. But when Moore left the project and Eric Heiserher overtook the yeah. project, I kind of shrugged as being kind because I noticed the first thing he wrote was the Nightmare on Elm Street remake, which we've already talked about and all three of us universally hated. So mm-hmm. going from, you know, a, a $50 steak to a piece of raw meat, in my estimation. So between that and this, these trailers did nothing for me whatsoever. And the fact that I saw the poster before I even saw the trailer, I thought it was a straight remake. I honestly did. And I was not in tune to the fact that it was going to be a quote-unquote prequel until I saw, I think it was like the final trailer. They mentioned it's a Norwegian team. I'm like, okay, so it is. it does take place before that. But if you were asking me if I'm excited to go and watch this particular piece of cinema, I would have told you no, especially just because there's other, there's other places I can go for horror. And I'm not... Not against remakes, you know. I've always said I look at them like cover songs. As long as you have a you have a pitch. To me, this felt like a remake disguised as a prequel. And sure enough, that's kind of what it is. It it definitely is. Yeah, this guy he had done a short film called Red Rain, and then he had been working on something that had been long in development with him called Army of the Dead. Um, that was his original thing, because, and then that ended up being obviously directed by Zack Snyder earlier this year. He really disappeared after this movie was over. He said the the experience of making this was awful, couldn't couldn't stand the Hollywood system, and he just came back with something like last year called the forget called the Forgotten Battle, something I've never even heard of. So I guess it's a Dutch movie. Mick, have you heard of that one? No, no, I have not. Um, I know I really uh. Hadn't heard of this director before, and it's well. I'll, I'll put it this way: um, you know, there aren't a lot of Dutch directors whose work has travelled or whom we've even heard of at all. I mean, I think the big obvious example is Paul Verhoeven. And mm-hmm. I remember I looked for this at the Wikipedia page for uh, Van Heineken uh, Jr. Uh, it noted that one of his first credits is for. Um, a film called The Lift, which is a very odd uh, 80s Dutch horror film directed by um, the marvelously named Dick Mass, <laughs> who also who also made Amsterdam. Wow. Which, 
and um, <laughs> and Dick Mass is new John Carpenter, but oh, it's it's weird. You're kidding. It's 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 funny thing. You come for you can come from a country with a smallish industry, yes. Uh huh. And maybe within that industry, you'll be massively protected or supported, or at least you'll be making films among your countrymen. But frequently, when people like this end up going to Hollywood, you know, it. Um, well, I mean, it can work the other way too. It can, you can it can end up being you know Billy Wilder, right? Or you know, um, so much of Hollywood cinema is made by uh, you know um, immigrants. But you know, in this guy's instance, he hasn't even made anything back in in Holland. You know, there's, there's no Dutch film you could point to. It's not like a, um, oh, is it a George Van Schlusio, the guy who made The Vanishing, and yeah. then made its Hollywood remake, which is not good. But, you know, if nothing else, he has the original. Carpenter himself, you know, it's funny. M- Matt, you and I were talking about Stephen King in our other huge retrospective that we have going on, and King's obviously very outspoken about a lot of the movies made off his work. Carpenter, this was coming out. It, it, Carpenter's one of those guys who he won't say much about these movies coming out because he gets cut he gets checks cut in his name. So what the fuck does he care? There, Apparently also, just so I can make this joke now, nowadays he's too stoned to even comment on anything because <laughs> he's a notorious pothead at this point. And he's also a very big video game enthusiast, which yeah, you know, he's is, a is kind of surprising because I wouldn't take him as a gamer. Yeah. Yeah. And he loves like he's a huge Lakers fan. I know that because I saw him at a con once, and he had in his, I guess they put in his contract or whatever, that he had to have the game on, the Laker game on, as he was, like, there doing signings. And he would kind of look over people's shoulder trying to see what's going on, like, not even not even giving people their full attention. Like, Carpenter's just one of those guys who, you know, I grew up loving the guy. I think a lot of people grew up just loving the guy's movies and everything he brought, and he, he did so many things for so many people. But you get to know him, like, get get to know the things that he's done later. He kind of comes off as kind of a dick. But he said that, look, he gave his blessing, not that he needed to, because Universal owned this property. Obviously, he played the video game, and he he just left it at that. He hasn't come out and said one way or the other whether this movie's any good. He did say, I think that I read an interview where he goes, well, they did one up on us. They got a babe with a flamethrower. Speaking of flamethrowers, we should talk a little bit about the Dark Horse comic that was written as a sequel to the original movie. Oh, oh yeah. Please do. Which basically, it, it's been a very long time since I've read it, but it does. It picks up right when the movie lives off, leaves off with Childs and uh, Matt McCready. They're out there in the the wilderness, and all of a sudden, like a like a Russian submarine picks them up, uh, and it turns out that Childs was infected. So it's like a chase to track him down, and they wind up going into the jungle. So it's got, like, Predator vibes to it after a certain point. It's very entertaining, and it came out at a time where Dark Horse was buying a lot of movie rights. I think they're also the, the company that wrote RoboCop versus Terminator. Yes, oh, yeah. that does exist, ladies and gentlemen. Both franchises we have covered on this very show, by the way. So we have. It, it's worth reading, and that was effectively, you know, it was a good sequel to yeah. the thing. And they were talking about, like, there were discussions about doing an actual sequel and the way that they talked about getting around it and getting Keith David and Kurt Russell to come back was that because they were in the sub-zero temperatures for so long, they'd, they'd have such severe frostbite that they'd be covered in extensive makeup. Ah. Uh, ah. Uh, yeah. Not uh, that Keith David needs it. 
he looks exactly the fucking same. Yeah, <laughs> the guy never ages. That's absolutely right. Uh, yeah, Carpenter himself. Carpenter himself has endorsed that comic. He do, he does really like that comic. Yeah, and it was uh, um, written by Chuck Farrer, the screenwriter of Hard oh, Target, and oh, one oh, of the um, half a dozen a credited writers on Darkman. Nice well, I, I, I remember this because I, uh, I tried to interview him once. I tried to get an interview with him, and uh-huh. I, I had this very entertaining conversation with his agent, who, um, I don't know whether the agent was being truthful or just trying to get me off the line to, to speak to somebody important, but the story I, I had was that, well, Chuck seldom answers the phone, and Chuck only ever comes into town to, you know, pick up pick up royalty checks or discuss business, but most of the time he's just out there in the wild. This is what I was told. So, um, <laughs> a very entertaining anecdote about just Chuck, it's just a, uh, you know, I guess, I guess, you know, the sort of crazy survivalist version of Walden, you know, um, <laughs> which I, I really want to believe this is true. Um, I love the idea of this survivalist out by the water writing hard target. <laughs> That's fucking fantastic. I, I love this, yes. I love this, it's, yes. At, at peace, you know, with nature so that, you know, he can focus on his art. You know, just... just <laughs> Nestling under the sequoias and going, yes, yes, the protagonist will be called <laughs> Chance, Chance, yes, because his mother took one. <laughs> it's just marvelous. Wow. Anyhow, I, you know, I'm, and I meant to get a copy of that comic for this retrospective. I never got a chance to get it. Um, I'm doing a lot of other reading, um, but I, it, it, it's curious to me because I did read it as a teenager. I haven't read it since. I'm glad there was that kind of pre. There was that kind of sequel to this. And Matt, I mean, do you think that would have been the way to go to maybe adopt that comic? I think so, but it would have. You would have. I think you would have needed at least Kurt Russell to come back. And I don't know if we were yet at the point where he was 100% quote unquote reinvested into acting. Probably would have had to do it like right after Miracle came out. But as far as doing a, a sequel based on that comic, I would have liked to have seen it. But but at the same time. I like how purposefully nihilistic the ending is. And there's a part of me, yeah. I, I appreciate the comic exists because it's well-written for what it is, but at the same time, by doing anything after that, you're sort of ruining the, the ultimate like, underlying message that the movie leaves you yeah. with. Um, and, and at the very least, would not have wanted to see John Carpenter do it because I saw Escape from L.A. <laughs> We might cover that one day. Yeah. yeah. I saw that in movies with Adam Bunch, and I definitely have memories of it. Yeah. Yeah, this was the time when Carpenter, his movie output was not the greatest. You know, he had a great run in the 80s. Those 90s rolled around. Memorize of Invisible Man. Yeah, some people really like In the Mouth of Madness. I'm not a fan of that movie. A lot I'm, of people are. It's in my top three. What's that? Is it really? Yeah, I go oh, yeah. The Thing. Uh, well, I go Escape from New York, The Thing, In the Mouth of Madness. Those would be my top three. Wow. All right. Yeah. So, so we're doing um, Escape from New York. The three of us are doing Escape from New York next year, by the way. <laughs> uh, go ahead, Matt, Mick. What were you saying? I was going to say, there was a, um, just before this came out, there was another Dark Horse comic. Uh, I think it might actually have been a free one. I don't remember spending money on it, but there was a Steve Niles. Oh, really? Other prequel to this? Yes. And um, in typical Steve Niles fashion, it was a, um, it was a really great idea that, 
the comic itself didn't have enough room to properly expand upon, but his idea was, um, as, as you're familiar with the history of Greenland, you might know that it's a failed Viking colony, and that mm. the, uh, for, um, for quite some time, archaeologists had always wondered why the Viking colony in Greenland had failed. And um, as you read Jared Diamond's book, Collapse, there's a very, uh, very grim uh, explanation for all of this. But anyhow, without um, <laughs> getting that depressing, um, Niles wrote this comic prequel, which is um, set when Greenland is a Viking colony. And um, of course, they unearthed a the thing. And that's is that's, it good? Um, it's a good idea. I think it's. I think if I remember correctly, it was a free thing, so it's barely twenty pages. Okay. I think it was a free kind of promotional thing, and um, honestly, the idea of you know the original Norwegians, right? Ancient ancient Norse folk, battling a thing. You know that's an interesting idea, especially if it's you know if you've got characters battling that kind of threat and they have no scientific framework, right? Mm-hmm. And you know. Um, it's a really great idea. It might have been a better idea for, you know, a, a, another another sort of film instead of sort of a sort of you know quickly. Well, I don't want to say quickly produced because I think it was probably well drawn and everything. But you know, um, you know, a comic that doesn't have enough time to properly explore how cool that premise actually is. You know. Yeah. Yeah. For record, uh, to, to kind of expound on that idea, I would have loved to have seen just, if you were going to go the colonial period route, or basically at a time where there was no technology, do something like the production value of the village, but actually write a better script. Because um, that movie has a lot of outsiders and isolation. I think something like The Thing would actually play very well in that kind of environment. Right, and we're getting that new Predator sequel, aren't we? Which is with Skulls or something, whatever it's called, where it is yeah, I think it is that. It's I'm like it's, it's pre-20th century. Oh boy. Oh boy. Garrett, I guess we gotta, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta yeah. dig up that we gotta dig up that old one. Yeah, yeah. but um, again, um, that well, that that film, from what I've read sounds very much like the kind of thing that would have been one of Dark Horse's Predator comics in the 90s, because they did a lot of that. They did a lot of, you know, what if the Predator was at this particularly violent moment in history, you know. Yeah. You know what I love about this? We haven't even started going into the plot yet, and we've already hit the mark that Mick said we were going to do this entire movie on 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're done. We can go now. Yeah, uh, we're done. Can we just copy and paste old record podcast footage and just pass it off as a new show? <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, I'll add CGI and um, we'll we'll get going on that. Let's get going. So we get some wind whistling, and we are told that this is Antarctica, 1982. Then we get hints from that familiar Ennio Morricone score. So right away, we know this isn't taking place in the present. We are in John Carpenter territory, as you guys have said. This was the tease. Is this a sequel? Is this a prequel? When the fuck is this going to take place? We're in 1982. Is that a good idea? It's an obvious idea, but that's sort of a trend that this movie follows to a borderline early grave, is that there's no... I don't think there's anything in this movie that takes me by surprise when it comes to depicting iconography. They always go for the obvious shit, and they always go for the being as slavishly devoted to the Carpenter movie, while at the same time 
trying to pass it off as its own thing, and that is to this entire movie's detriment. Right from setting it in 1982 alone, you are joining yourself at the hip to Carpenter's movie. You might as well put this in the 1982 Blu-ray. You put both boxes into an incinerator, and you merge them together like the two-headed monster. That might, might as well be what this fucking movie is. Well, it's kind of weird, because I don't know if you've um, noticed, but the... Uh Certainly, in this side of the Atlantic, Universal announced the upcoming 4K box set of the Carpenter film, and it's looking at the specs, and this film is an extra, <laughs> which you know, seems just to underline its status right now. It's it's an extra. We'll give you this film too. You know, and I don't even think it's the film is an extra. Yeah, there's a review, folks, right there. That's the review. We're done. It's a movie if you want. It can also be a coaster, you know. <laughs> we we see some Norwegian explorers telling some bad jokes, and they get a signal on their radar right before their plow falls down into the ice. We know that they're fucked as they turn their headlights on. The thing title card plasters itself across the screen. How are you guys liking this opening? It's a bit Erwin Allen. If Erwin Allen had somehow still in the Nightmare Universe still been making films in the 21st century, it, it's that. It's a big disaster thing. You know, it's we've fallen through a giant crack. And here we are, you know, I, I'm, getting, I'm getting slight earthquake, slight Poseidon adventure vibes from this. Oh, uh, okay, I see what you're saying. Yes, and it's incre- It's already distracting. You know, this is a film that's kind of trying to... It, it, it's in conversation with the 1982 film, but every time it does something you couldn't do in 1982, it's wildly distracting. And it's a big CGI shot. And it's not that CGI is bad, but it is a distracting stylistic turn. I like the discovery aspect of... It's purely accidental. I like that they're, they're not setting out to find them, uh, this extraterrestrial creature just yet. Because uh, that, that plays into a lot of classic science fiction. A lot of it is exploration through coincidence. So in that respect, I can give it a positive vibe. But to start, the shot compositions and the, the effects blending don't start off on a good note here with the escapator falling through the ice hole and it gets progressively worse throughout the movie like this is kind of this is literally a as obvious a metaphor as what's to come as possible we see a wolf or something being examined as who could it be now plays in the background this isn't foreshadowing at all is it guys well it's <laughs> it's not even the original version of who can it be now that's not even the original version no, no. Well, I mean, it says in the credits performed by Colin Hay of Men at Work, but so I'm assuming it's not the version by Men at Work from their album, Business as Usual, or whatever it was called, the Men at Work album that's got Down Under on it and the uh, the other Men at Work songs we might know. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, I don't even think it's the original version. There is some weird shenanigans happened with Men at Work and the publishing rights to some of their songs. Uh, there's some weird legal shenanigans going on there, so um, I think it's probably easier to get Colin Hay to record, re-record something. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it's it's distracting and it's it's kind of on the nose. It's not as fun as yes. you know it's, as the Stevie Wonder track that's used in the original, where it's yeah. it's good foreshadowing. Here it's kind of like oh right, you know, you might as well have had Sheb Willie's Flying Purple People Eater on it, you know. 
And I'm going to keep my music comments to a minimum because every time we discuss music on this show, you and I start yelling at each other. That's true. That's true. We meet paleontologist Kate Lloyd, played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead. She's being lambasted for forgetting something before Dr. Sandy, Sander Halvison, who tells Kate that a team found something in Antarctica and he has chosen her to help with a structure and a specimen that he himself needs help with. Can I just point out here that she is very much a movie PhD? Uh, yeah. She's uh, like, at this point in time, Rita of Winstead is 27. And it's not impossible to have a doctorate by 27, but she seems to have a doctorate and also be a well-respected research scientist already. Mm-hmm. And it's one of these kind of, oh, okay. I guess you want the authority that comes from us having a character who is a doctor and an expert, but... You don't want to commit the cardinal sin, inverted commas, of casting a woman older than 35. It's, uh, I'm, Im- I'm immediately not, it's not that I'm not buying a protagonist, but it's a distracting thing. It's like, oh, really? You, you think she could be this top paleontologist already at this age? And I guess she could be theoretically, but that should be the whole point of the conversation about her then. You know? Yeah, great point. Now, I'm going to expound upon what Mick just said. Not only do they not cast someone who's over the age of 35 and would have the credibility, we have to cast someone who's conventionally pretty, but not so hot that she distracts from the actual movie. We also have to cast someone who's a very, cast someone who's talented. I like Mary Elizabeth Winstead in a great number of things. Unfortunately, the, these, um, all these characters are, are paper thin. Like, I, I've used paper towels that are more absorbent of personality than everyone in this movie. And she's not, let me put this up front, she's not, I don't have Denise Richards' questions about her being a nuclear physicist. I, I, I buy her as a scientist, I just don't buy her as someone on the level of, I just thought of it. This, this entire opening with the Norwegian guy coming to him, it's basically John Hammond approaching Sam Neill in Jurassic Park. Oh wow! It's literally yeah, good call. Literally the same sequence, B for B. Yeah, and it's um, it's yeah, it's exactly that. It's even worse. It's already we've already kind of had this sort of uh, this thing has already been stolen in films like uh, Roland Emmerich's Godzilla. Mm-hmm. You know, they had, well, the the scientist is at work on something else to be lifted off to go to this other mission. And even at that, this is kind of, sort of, in Jurassic Park, it's already kind of quasi-plagiarizing Close Encounters. Yeah. Which is the, uh, that, you know, our scientist protagonist is getting the exposition right at the start of the film because they've been taken for this mission. Yeah, it's, it's that thing. But uh, Plus, how, plus how one, great was it? Uh, oh, go ahead, Mick. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Um, here's a big thing, and it's not we're, like we're going to be mentioning CGI a lot. Yes. But even in the, some the little digital things, and um, when we're introduced to Kate, and she's looking at his remains, sort of through a keyhole camera and on a monitor, yes. Mm-hmm. And it's very obvious that the image has been composited into the monitor. It doesn't look like a real TV screen. In 1982. Wow. Wow. It's this very, very clean comp, and it, it, yeah. it, 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 it's instantly distracting. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and how great was it last week? We're discovering things with the team, right? Like everything's coming to us as the team's discovering it. Here we're having, and Matt, this is a brilliant comparison. We're having the Jurassic Park thing where we're having a scientist, big scientist come up to us and say, yes, you need to come take a look at this. Can you please help us with this? You're the expert. Can you help us? That's not as dramatic. That's not as enticing as what we experienced last week. So right away, I'm pretty much on a negative foot on this movie. Mirror Elizabeth Winstead, now, as the protagonist of this kind of movie, would be a much more appealing prospect. Yeah, great call. Adam tells her he has never seen Halveson this excited, as we cut to a helicopter where Kate is flying with a set of people, one of which is a snoring doctor named Graves, and she has asked how the Cavaliers are doing. Getting a little bit of uh, character development here. We're meeting Joel Egerton and company. Uh, how are we feeling about this group of characters, boys? this group of Norwegians and Joel Egerton that we'll be spending the majority of this film with? Um, I don't care. Yeah. I, I just, I just, I, you know, the, um, I think even like Cavaliers thing feels like a kind of very forced, what would regular people care about or are discussing sort of thing? I don't know. I don't think somebody liking a sports team is a substitute for them having a personality. I believe this in life as well as in screenwriting, you know, um, I don't, I don't well, know. It's a, uh, I, would, I would fight that by saying Matt being an angry Jets fan adds a lot to his personality. So <laughs> that's, that's, that, that, that's my counter-argument to your point there, Mick. I'm a huge Legerton fan, but this came out right before he got a new agent, apparently. Because if you look at his career and the 10 years since this movie versus the 10 years prior, uh, the last 10 years have been a lot more productive for him, both in quality and quantity. Unfortunately... Much like Mary Elizabeth Winstead, he is hamstrung by the material. In particular, his similarities to McCree. He's a helicopter pilot, and he's American. It's like they go out of their way to make him as close to Kurt Russell as possible. He's, he's even got a beard. Like, there's, yeah. no, there's no fucking subtlety at all. And, yeah. and you could see through the, I call it like the red tape when they were pitching this movie. Like, all the, just the bullshit of, oh, we're going our own way. We're going to do a prequel. But every, both visual cue and even down to the costuming, it's borderline plagiarism. So they get out, start exploring the caves where the people from the beginning disappeared from, and we are seeing way more than what we saw in Carpenter's film. We're seeing the ship in full display. Here's an interesting choice, huh? Like, Mick, are you agreeing with this? We're actually seeing the ship as opposed to last week. Like, you got to add something to it, right? But is this enough? No, I mean, I think this is a, um, again, this is a, and I'm always baffled when filmmakers decide to do this. It's a, um, they've decided to exploit our fear of the known, you know, it's a, uh, alien yeah. spaceship we don't know much about, scary. This one is just like, well, let's all have a big look at the alien spaceship. And, um, it's also very hard to conceive, especially considering this is a prequel. There are certain things are locked into, right? And one of them is the idea that it's the big saucer ship craft. So everything feels kind of overly familiar. You know, we'll yeah. get this throughout this. It's kind of, it's, you can't, you can't have a startling new design that feels strange. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a, um, like comparing it to a much better film, Eric Hesseur has his name on Arrival. You know, the fact that the spaceships ah. and that are, you know, strange 
upright obelisks that hover, you know, and it's so weird and alien and you're immediately put on edge. But this, oh, yeah, it's a flying saucer. It's, it's a generic sci-fi flying saucer. I am so tired of movies that involve the main characters going into the spaceship of the aliens. Whether it's Independence Day, whether it's Cowboys versus Aliens, it's a trope that Hollywood cannot get far enough away from. Like, they need to go as far away from my house as to Antarctica with this shit. I fucking hate it so much. They uncover a body located underneath the ice. So this is relatively loyal to that 1951 film, I guess. You know, they're, they're trying to play that trope as well. And uh, in this whole situation, Halverson is looking nefarious, telling his crew to stay away from the radios. Kate is saying that she will never look at the stars the same again, as we see another female in the group. So this is different. So at, they're trying something a little different by putting two females here. But Mick, you're saying that's not enough. No, well, I mean, it's just we have, this is all already so overly familiar. And... I don't know. I don't know if there's much else you can actually do with this premise and the short story it's based on. You've had two adaptations, and one's not terribly faithful, and the other one's much more faithful. But again, you're kind of boxed in, especially with this, you know, functioning as a prequel. So this can't have an unexpected ending, and it can't have a different creature. It's you know, it, we're 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 locked yeah. into this particular thing. So it's a uh, honestly, it just feels like the world's most expensive piece of fan fiction. The group is gathered around the ice they took out of the ground as Halveston is talking about taking tissue samples and then tells Kate to not contradict him in front of the group again. Can I just point out that none of the Norwegians have informed their NATO allies about discovering extraterrestrial life? Yeah. Just kind of a thing you should mention. They get the tissue sample and then celebrate with a party as Halveston says that he has never seen anything like what they have in the other room. In the meantime, like Gremlins and Xenomorphs before it, it is starting to hatch. The dogs are starting to act a little weird, so Derek moves into the other room to explore. We get a boo jump scare before the thing springs from the ice, and the rest of the group go down to explore and find the dog completely mangled. Not much to say to this. I Honestly, you know, they're trying something a little different, but why bother? Heineken Jr. did say in the lead-up to this, we're trying to do as many makeup effects and practical effects as possible to stay loyal to that original version. Mick, you've already kind of lambasted the digital effects of this. How are you feeling about the thing at this point, at least the way it looks? It's, well, I think part of the problem is that it's CGI, which is less satisfying yeah. to look at than, you know, um, than Rob Boutine's creations in the Carpenter film. But the other problem is that these are really boring monster designs throughout. Absolutely. There's, it's you know every time um, when like someone like the Furlan toys or Necker someone does a line of figure based on the creatures from the thing yeah the Carpenter film and you know you, you look at the design you go, oh yeah that's that's the Blur monster I recognize that that's a fun and iconic design and none of the monster designs in this are fun and iconic and I like obviously I would prefer practical entirely to CGI but. I think the CGI's the CGI's slight fakiness is secondary to just these being boring monster designs based around a a general theme, but they're not terribly exciting or, or dynamic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, around this time, J.J. Abrams had his little run before he took over Star Trek. Or actually, he had already taken over Star Trek at this point, but his monsters, like, remember the Cloverfield monster? Like, it was such a boring design. And I, I feel that here where... 
the digital effects of this, and they tried to remain loyal, but they added like these weird technical things that we're going to talk about here in a bit. But I'm with you. I think it's very boring. I think one of the other issues outside of the renderings are just atrocious is that if you look at the John Carpenter movie, while most of them are visible, a lot of it is shot in either confined spaces or areas that are not 100% lit all the way through. Yeah. So as brilliantly grotesque as a lot of them are, there's never a moment where you 100% see everything, which makes it all the more scary. And here, almost everything is blatant. This is the most well-lit fucking Norwegian outpost I've ever seen. And also, yeah, mixed right, they're, they're generic as fuck. But the thing itself is completely recontextualized. In the original, you got the sense it was a creature of intellect. It knew what it was doing. It knew how to turn people against each other based on circumstances. And this one, it's just a mindless killing machine. Yeah, it, last time you felt like it, it was doing what it needed to do for survival. That, that's a great, great point, Matt. And here, yeah, it's just killing. It just takes the subtlety out of it. It takes everything that I love about that movie out of it. And by distilling it like this, it, it it just it affects the way I feel about this version and this this series. Those last two movies did you know say what you will about the carrot monster from the first thing from another world, but at least it was, it, it has subtlety to it. Here we're not seeing any subtlety, and it it does hurt this production greatly. So they corner the thing and set it on fire. Halvison says he needs to examine Henry, and there's a debate on whether or not to do so. They look at the burnt-up alien and find a sack, which also contains brand-new human tissue, which Halvison is fascinated by. So, Mick, none of this is change your negative feeling going in, right? Like, at this point, you're pretty much thinking this is exactly what you predicted it would be. Yeah, it's entirely needless. We don't we don't need this film at all. And um, it's also, um, and again, it, it's maybe harder to appreciate if you've only seen a lot of these, uh, you know, Scandinavian actors, English language work. But Ulrich Thompson, who is playing the, the lead of Norwegians, um, he's an amazing actor. Um, you know, he's the he's lead in the film Festen, if you've seen that, which is this oh, yeah. Danish yeah, I, you know, he's an incred- incredible actor, you know, um, all of these guys are really great, this this cast, but the script isn't doing them any favours, you know, there's not a lot to it. Um, I think the, um, I think one piece of advice I'd heard about screenwriting, which I think is really solid, is you should always be writing parts that actors really want to play. You know, even the smallest one, even the smallest part in the script should be something where if an actor gets up, they'll be like, oh, yes. And yeah. with this, it's not really getting to that stage. It's very generic, you know. Uh, you know, uh, and the fact that Halverson and Kate quickly get into this sort of fairly tired, sort of Ripley versus Ash kind of dynamic. They're character types we've seen before, and there's not enough shading to make them interesting. Great point. It's amazing how. You can have all the talented people in the world, and I, and I think this is a very great cast. You mentioned the Norwegian guy. I think Joel Edgerton's a terrific actor. Uh, Mr. Echo from Lost is in here as well. I, uh-huh. I'm not even going to try to pronounce his name, but it goes to show that it all comes down to characterization, especially in a movie like this. In the, I never get the sense that these people were... Because they spend so much time getting along, they also don't act like scientists. Like they're just they're fucking drinking and shit after this. They discover a frozen body, which they leave in an area where it's easily <laughs> melted. It reminds me of, ironically, this reminded me a lot of Prometheus and the Ghostbusters reboot, where 
you are telling me they're scientists, but they're not, most of them are not acting in a true scientific method. And that's a major knock I have on this movie as well, is that outside of Mary Elizabeth Winstead, everyone else is an absolute moron. And this guy, the Halverson character, he might as well be fucking, uh, like when Guy Pearson Prometheus shows up with all that decrepit Crypt Keeper makeup, he might as well be like that level of villain. Of course, I'm, I'm all about it for myself. And it's the most obvious, like, the only reason they made it a woman is so they could appeal to the cheap seats with making a statement on sexism in the workplace. Yeah, yeah. that's a great point. I, you know, and I, I, at first I was looking at this when this was announced, and I saw Winstead was the lead. I thought, you know, that's, that's a different take. I'm kind of curious about that. But you're absolutely right. It's just window dressing. It's window dressing to get this movie to where it wants to go as opposed to something that is interesting. And yeah, that hurts it as well. Yeah, no, it's not terribly convincing. It's not. It's not. They haven't established a convincing world or a, a convincing sort of cast of characters. And by this point in the Carpenter film, you know, we already have a very clear sense of who all these guys are and what the dynamic is between them. Yeah. And with this, it's oh, it's again, it's it's Halverson who's kind of a bit too obviously unsympathetic and out for himself. And the rest are all, you know, um, modern-day Vikings who like to drink. Ha! There's no sense of a range of interesting personalities who might, you know, have pre-existing conflicts that will play out in interesting ways as they all succumb to paranoia. There's none of that. Juliet isn't feeling well as they find a plate from Henry's arm in the alien. Kate finds that the alien cells are attaching, are attacking Henry's cells. So we are getting a scientific explanation as to how the alien imitates other living things. Uh, is this satisfying for you, Mick? No, because we do. Do we get that microscope shot where yes. it looks like something from a uh, like an advert for toilet cleaner? You know, <laughs> where they'll show the toilet cleaner clean germs. It looks like that. It has that kind of you know. You know, it has an our mouthwash kills ninety nine point nine percent of all plaque kind of feel to it because it's just a. <laughs> It's like they go in and the cells just sort of explode in a in a very in a very CGI kind of way, and <laughs> where it feels like it's supposed to be abstract in the way something illustrating the point in the ad might be, but it doesn't feel like it's a sort of scientifically convincing. You know, um, it doesn't look like it's we got this footage from Oxford Scientific Films. It looks like oh, thing goes exploding in computer. That's 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 how I'm feeling, and uh, yeah, it, and also the audience is so stupid they need a graphic to explain it to them. Carpenter didn't insult his audience like this. Uh, you making that comparison to a toilet is very suitable for this film, sir. Great job, <laughs> Matt. How about you? Is this metachlorian type explanation satisfying for you? No, and I, I hate to constantly harp on the effects, but the the assimilation of the cells. It looked better five, like four years earlier in Spider-Man 3 with the symbiote. Like, this effect oh, yeah. is not, it's not overly complicated, so I don't understand how you can pump a respectable, you know, $40 million into a horror movie, which is quite a lot. Um, yeah. Have everything look so shoddy. Because you're, you're also not having to pay any, there's no big stars you have to pay, there's no big director. You know, Carpenter's mo- movie, the money was on the screen. Here, the money must have gone to the executives who cleverly marketed this, although not cleverly enough because it didn't do so well. Well, I mean, again, considering how frequently the release of this was delayed, 
And, you know, uh, Van Heineken said a few things about it not being his cut. And I don't know, if you, did you look through the very end credits of this? No, I turned it off as soon as it was over. Right, because it's, you know, when you do this and you start seeing credits for things like additional photography or whatever, and, you know, like reshoots are common for everything, yes, and it's not necessarily yeah. a mark of a bad film. But this has an interesting thing where it has additional editors credited. And one of the additional editors credited in the end credits, one of the two additional editors credited is Frank J. Uri Oste. If you knew Frank J. Uri Oste. Um, no. Editor of Robocop and Die Hard and Hunt for Red October and The Guy. You know, one of the best editors on the planet. And I just get from things like that and just from scenes like this, I get the impression that this film probably tested really badly. Yeah. And, and then, Matt, or and, and Mick, you even mentioned at the beginning of this podcast that this thing was had reshoots and it was delayed a number of times. It took a long time for this to actually get to screen, and that's a great point. I think that might have a lot to do with it. So Sam and the crew, they take off with Henry as Kate finds teeth fillings in the bathroom. She finds the remains and runs out to run, warn the helicopter, but before she can, Griggs turns into the creature and attacks Olaf. This effect of the, of the face changing really made me miss Rob Poteen. God, this effect fucking sucks. And Matt, we are harping on the effects, but Jesus Christ, this is a makeup effect that goes. I mean, this is terrible. This is something you see on the Sci-Fi Network. Yeah, and the tentacles, it might as well be the DP throwing a plate of spaghetti at the other actor. Yeah. Like, it's that fucking bad. And also, this alien is fucking stupid. You're going to expose yourself in a helicopter like that? Yes. Yeah. Just stupid. It's the, the thing in this movie kind of a, is operating on this sort of a horror equivalent of Roger Rabbit's rule in Roger Rabbit, where, you know, he could only, he could only slip out of the handcuffs when it was funny. <laughs> There's no rationale or logic about it. It's a thing will do things, even if it endangers itself. But if the thing will be scary at that point, you know, it's, it's, it's not logical, but it's like, ooh, this would sure scare people who might be watching if I did this thing now. Your metaphors are on fire today, sir. Kate tries telling the group that no one can leave until they know what's going on. Basically, that the alien can replicate a person and that it is still there. Juliet starts creating more paranoia as she corners Kate and tells her that she thinks she saw someone covering the tracks of blood. A big problem I'm having, boys, is I couldn't get straight who was who. Everyone in that last that, film has such distinct characteristics. In this one, I tend to lose my way a bit. Yeah. It's hampered by the fact that this cast is exponentially bigger than the other one. And the only justification yeah. for it is just to have a bigger body count because it's not here for characterization. And there's gems of an interesting idea. Like, I think the idea of pitting the different nationalities against each other. You know, the, the Norwegians don't like the Americans. The Americans don't like the Norwegians. You got one English guy. I think, especially in the 80s, when we were still in us versus them mentality, especially in America, you could have mm -hmm. done something with that in a way Carpenter's movie only hints at subtextually. But, like, a lot of things in this movie... It's the creativity is also frozen in a block of ice, and they weren't smart enough to unthought. Yeah, no, there's there is you know, well, it's interesting this coming from the same producers as the Dawn of the Dead remake, because yeah. you know the original Dawn of the Dead we have a very small cluster of characters and we get to do well, 
And in Cartman Soap, we have a larger cluster of characters we'll get to do well, but both both this and the Dawn remake are, are just overstuffed with characters. As said, it's to keep the body count high, but it's stops us engaging with them because none of them get enough attention. And I honestly, I was able to keep track of Joel Edgerton and we live with Winstead and Uller Thompson's character and uh, Christoph Hedju, the the big Norwegian with the beard, who's in mm-hmm. Game of Thrones. Yeah, oh, yeah. that's it. Yeah, Those yeah. are the characters I keep track of. Otherwise, I'm just like. Wait, who's what? Otherwise, it's they're all fairly interchangeable, and I got confused. Juliet transforms into an al- into the alien and attacks Kate. And I'll go ahead and say, kind of a nifty little transformation. They set the alien ablaze, and Heinegan he is relying on the light from the fire to light this dramatic bit of Kate explaining her plan of how to get rid of this what she calls virus. Who couldn't see this Juliet chick train changing into this fucking monster? Nothing unpredictable is happening at all in the course of this movie. Isn't that right, boys? I would find you on that just because the I swear to God the bulbs on my TV were down because I swear to God this was the same DP who did fucking AVP Requiem. This one of the darkest. <laughs> this one of the worst. Oh. This one of the worst lit movies I have seen in a very long time. It is. It's it's weird because it's well it's. I can tell you who's a DP on a uh, on well, Daniel Pearl, right? Yeah, Daniel Pearl, yeah. Mr. Tex- Mr. Texas Chainsaw, uh, yeah. both times, and uh, Billy Jean, the Billy Jean video for Michael Jackson, a guy who really mm-hmm. knows what he's doing. So I don't know who ended up grading that for him, but it's it. Uh, I'm, I'm sure he's he's uh, suffered enough being blamed for it. I can't, you know. Um, with this, I I didn't think this was overly dark. I could see everything just fine but I think this is the problem I could see most things just fine and there's no um, there's no interesting use of negative space like they've talked about uh, you know Matthias van Heidegger Jr. has talked about how they wanted this to be shot on film and they shot it on film and it's shot anamorphic like Carpenter's movie so it's very wide um, but Carpenter's film uses sort of framing so well and what we can't see is as important as what we can see, and that makes it more frightening. And honestly, if I was having to teach a class on framing and camera positioning and movement, and I just used John Carpenter as a thing, you could cover everything. You could have so many dynamic examples. Whereas with this, I could only use this to demonstrate basic craft. You know, you could mm-hmm. go like, there's no cool shots in this. That's a close-up, but it's not a cool close-up. The eyelines are matching, but not in an interesting way. You know, it's it's all craft, and it's competent, but it's not interesting. Yeah, that's the main point right there. It's just not interesting. Sam and Derek, they make their way back, and there's a dispute on whether they're human or not. So paranoia is now completely in the air. Their entire lab gets set afire, and there's even more debate as to who or what did this. So this is when Kate comes up, oh boy, here we go, with the brilliant test of checking to see if everybody has fillings because the alien cannot replicate inorganic material. This was uh, definitely an odd choice of how to distinguish itself from Carpenter's film. Well, it's a nice logical extrapolation, right? It's yeah. thinking about, okay, what, what might the rules here be and how can we do something that's not the same as the blood test? but is similar, but, you know, the blood test has a number of elements that are already unnerving, like the taking of blood, yes, and 
I definitely wouldn't like, you know, basically, if it's a choice between a dental checkup and having to cut yourself, I think most people go, oh, all right, I'll, I'll let the trained person look at my molars. Yeah. You know, it's, it's that, it's not, it's not, it's not intrinsically scary or unnerving. Uh-huh. Um, it just, also, it feels like a, um, well, I'm going to make sure you're not a terrifying ship-changing alien by peeking right into your mouth. That's, that's <laughs> not tempting fate, right? It's like, really? Just, no, no. So the dumb thing is that while the, the thought process is it's warranted in something that's already been established, the issue is that not everybody has a cavity. That's not universal across every single person. So, like... Yeah. You can only do it up to a point, and you would have to find something else. Blood is something everybody has, so that carries a little bit more weight. And also, this is one of those instances, it's almost at the same point, you know, right after everyone's paranoid, a bunch of people have been killed, now we're going to do the big test. It's almost in the exact same spot. It's tweaked mm-hmm. enough to come across as creative and inspired, but when you really think about it, it doesn't, it won't work for everybody. It just doesn't. Yeah, and this was, like, there wasn't much about this film being talked about when it was out, but this was the one thing I do remember being kind of a, um, kind of a disparaging set of uh, conversations was how they handled the quote-unquote blood test scene. And I'm completely with you guys. I think it's kind of inspired, but the idea that not everybody has a cavity really does, like, kind of hurt the logic here. So the paranoia is setting in, is settling in, as there is debate on where or who the alien actually is. They move through the facility, and before Sam and Derek can be burned, Derek takes out Peter. His tank blows up, and Sam walks into the game room where the alien once again manifests itself, and like a sea creature from Lord of the Rings, starts attacking them with tentacles. A tentacle, I should say. This was, uh, this was weird, huh? Yeah. And also boring. Yes. It's a great point. The extent to which I'm finding people being menaced by a shape-shifting alien boring can't be understated here, and it shouldn't be boring. No. It should be something. I mean, I, it doesn't need to be as scary as Carpenter's film, but I need to be feeling something. I actually kept finding myself wishing I was watching Deep Rising again. Oh, jeez. Because <laughs> Deep, Rising, Deep Rising made me feel things. Deep Rising was fun, um, you know. And if if you can't definitely definitely inspired by that Carpenter movie too, Deep Rising, I should say. Oh yeah, oh yeah. But I mean, this is just this is just. Why am I watching this? Yeah. (laughs) For this podcast, make it. Yeah. Now I just want to talk about Deep Rising because that's a movie I actually like. (laughs) Yeah, Deep Rising. Let's 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 just talk Deep Rising. It also doesn't have great effects, but you can say that about Steven Summers movies in general. But watching fucking uh, Treat Williams and Falcon Jansen fighting a giant sea monster, what's not to love about that? Yeah, well, here's, here's the thing. thing. Uh, there's this concept you'll see in screenwriting books like Save the Cat. I think it's the Save the Cat where they'll talk about this notion they call the promise of a premise. Where mm-hmm. it's, where's the thing that we paid money to see? Where's that happening in the movie? How's that playing out? And again, talking about Deep Rising, I'm like, yeah, Treat Williams and Pamke Jensen are going to fight Monster Squid in an abandoned ship. You know. 
<laughs> and you totally see that. You're like, oh, yeah, this is what I came for. And this film doesn't do that. You know, there, no. We, we, don't, we don't get any of the promises that are, that are established, you know, that, that, are, that should be forthcoming. It just doesn't deliver. They do the spider effect, except instead of a head is of the entire body. This was another interesting effect that I don't know. It just it just doesn't completely work for me. No, it it doesn't. Here's the thing. Okay, I keep saying thing. It's just it's become a <laughs> it's become a tick. No, uh, apologies. Uh, so we had in the last couple of years two movies that both do deliberately tip their hats to Carpenter's movie. In it part two, or it's chapter two rather, they uh, replicate the uh, spider head sequence in the thing. Have you seen this? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yep. I can't talk about it though for another ten years. Yeah, we oh. can't talk about it for another five years. But okay. Yeah. yeah. No, okay. I, I misspoke. I misspoke. It's got to be twenty-seven years. Okay. <laughs> there's also scary stories to tell in the dark. Did you see that? Oh my God! You're oh yeah. And it yes. kind of has a sequence that's reminiscent of the thing, but so much more magically staged than this. And that you just CGI in a really interesting way, and where it is creepy uh-huh. and unsettling. And I wish some of that movie's energy had been present here. Because you can do this. You can you can establish cool monster effects and have monsters doing terrifying things. And the audience will respond, but here it's just oh well, it's all it's all teeth and tentacles, and I don't care. It's just gray matter. Like every yeah, all the monsters have the same color scheme. They're all freaking um, they're all tentacle based in some capacity. Like she's right, scary stories to tell in the dark. Dark. The jangly man is way more effective than anything in here, and that's a PG thirteen movie aimed at younger kids. Mm-hmm. And there's some there's some hardcore like that movie's not afraid to kill kids. No, which I always, which I always support in yeah. movies. Not enough horror movies have teeth nowadays. Uh, speaking of it, um, not afraid to kill kids. Uh, but yeah, nothing here. This felt like the most sanitized PG thirteen version of the thing I could think of. Kate Burns Jonas, who has a part of the alien growing out of his face, and it turns his eye red. So now the whole place is burning, leaving just Kate and Sam. They make their way through the facility as we see Halvison get attacked. The alien is trying to merge before Kate takes it out. The alien again attacks as he bolts where the alien has fully manifested itself. But before it can attack Kate, before it can attack, Kate once again shows up and burns it to shreds. All right, yeah. so um, we're getting a lot of action here in the last leg of this film. Yeah, it's kind of... Um I can only assume that wherever she, you know, did one of her multiple degrees in paleontology, that one of those places made her also do, you know, a, a module on flamethrower usage. <laughs> you know, where she, she's full on, a, um, she's Rick Dalton in Five Fists of McCluskey, good with a flamethrower, you know? I was thinking either that or Ripley. You know, it, yeah. I, I know that they were trying to do the Ripley callback here, but it just doesn't work. And I love Mary Elizabeth Winstead like you two. I'm a big fan of hers, especially in this era. And God, it just it's just not working, man. It, it's, no. it's different, but I could definitely see McGreedy doing this as opposed to Kate. Well, it's a thing that makes her feel like a um, 
She's still like a supermarket own brand version of Ripley. It's evoking too many comparisons with another classic character in the better, better series of films. Um, I'll say this one thing. Um, you know, like Mirla's with Winstead is now married to Ewan McGregor, yeah? Yeah. Do you think when they were bonding on the set of uh, season three of Fargo, um, do you think they find themselves saying things like, oh, I was in a disappointing sci-fi prequel as well. <laughs> do, you think that had, do you think that conversation happened? I feel it must have. Uh, I think they yeah. still having that conversation, honestly. What's scarier than anything in this movie is that we literally just talked about Ewan McGregor. Yeah, yeah. Now we did. We just like that. Like these yeah. coincidences are so fucking scary. <laughs> we haven't talked about Mirrors with Winstead having been in a film with Kurt Russell before this. The only two films I've seen him before the season Kurt, Kurt Russell is also in them. What were those? Um, Death Proof. Oh, that's right. She was in Death Proof. She says, yeah, she has the most underwritten character in Death Proof. Yes. Uh, They're all underwritten. Uh, hers is <laughs> particularly underwritten, and um, she's also in the uh, wonderful Disney comedy Sky High. Yes. Which is uh, one of those great films that should have been a huge hit, but wasn't because we live in an unjust universe. But she's in that, so um, yeah. Uh, in an unjust universe. Well, it came out right as superhero movies kind of went to the next level. If they had waited two years, it would have done a hell of a lot better. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, that's a movie I haven't seen, by the way. I've never oh, seen Sky High. You gotta get, on, get on to it. It's lots of fun. Yeah. Yeah. So if we thought Halveston was dead, you'd be dead wrong as he makes his way out in a snowplow. As they're in pursuit, Kate is looking at Sam in a galvanizing way and asks him what happened to Lars. Sam just simply tells her that the alien didn't kill him. They're now where the ship is, and Kate falls down what looks like an air conditioner vent. She falls through more of the ship as Sam just keeps looking for her. She finds... Well, what exactly is it that she finds? It looks like something from a movie that you and I are going to be covering soon, Matt, The Lawnmower Man. Like, what exactly is this fucking thing that she finds? It's a fucking, it's a fucking Tetris pile. Yes! It looks like you have to play a game of Tetris in the force field that Surge has in the opening of Toy Story 2. It, this, and again, I just saw this in Cowboys vs. Aliens. That also came yeah. out this year, where they go into the enemy ship at the end. Like, it is... Uh-huh. Like, my big question was, was this necessary? This adds nothing to the mythos. It's just here for differentiation purposes. It's also very easy to do big blocky shifts in CGI. So, you know, mm-hmm. if, you, if you blow in all the budget on uh, teeth and tendrils, you know, uh, <laughs> asking your CG artists to create a big blocky abstract thing is fairly easy. This is something you can generate procedurally without uh, without breaking a sweat. So it's 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 not interesting to look at, but it's also not even an effect that would have taken very much time, I think, to get done. The alien attacks again, and after a bit of cat and mouse, Kate throws a grenade at it, which blows it up as well as the ship's engines. So Kate and Sam they get in the snowmobile. This reunion isn't long though, as Kate notices that Sam is missing his earring. She blows him away, and you know what this kind of reminded me of? The T-1000 blowing up at the end of T-2. Like, this whole effect of his head, like, being disproportionate to his body and folding in half like this. It was so bizarre. What did you guys feel about how this thing ends? What would have made this better 
is if they didn't specify whether or not he was the alien. Yeah. And perhaps she burned him on accident, just out of sheer paranoia. Um, because mm-hmm. I don't believe the earring is called any attention to. You have to be watching the movie and consciously aware of which ear, ear it's on for that to really matter. And at this point, I think it would have been neat if she killed someone unjustly. Good point. Yeah, it's kind of a cheat because there hasn't really been any real discussion of his earring. It's not a thing we could be expected to have spotted. Um, like, there's a similar kind of beat in Edgar Wright's The World's End. Oh. About a character having a birthmark, but there's a conversation about their birthmark early on, right? And Nick D and oh, Lee yeah. having that birthmark, so that when it's gone, we're kind of like, oh, yes. But, it, you know, it's set up and it's established. And it's like, oh, wait, you didn't hear, oh, eerie, right. It feels like, you know, when you're watching a bad mystery film, and the thing that clinches it, that solves the case for the brilliant detective is something we couldn't possibly have seen or known. Uh-huh. It's, oh, honestly, it's the BBC Sherlock. It's that, <laughs> there's no way we could pick up on this because the, the writers didn't properly draw our attention to it. Mm-hmm. But the protagonist yeah. did. Uh, yeah, it, it feels unfair. Um, also, why didn't you just barbecue him before he gets into the plot? Uh, That's time definitely. to do it. Wait outside, so you've got some yeah. shelf. You know? <laughs> well, she's also the person who sticks her hand into a possible infected alien parasite's mouth. So maybe she, yeah. maybe her PhD, she pulled out of a cereal box. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or a Cracker Jack box. Credits are rolling, but we knew this wasn't the end. We are once again hearing that thunderous bass from Maricone's original score, and then pretty much end up seeing the beginning of Carpenter's thing reenacted. Fan service? Did this leave you guys with a smile at all, or are we just waiting for this thing to end? Yeah, just waiting for this thing to end. It's 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 just totally redundant and pointless. And, and completely soulless. There's nothing else. There's nothing else added to it. You know, it's not making us reframe Carpenter's film or see any of its events in a different light. Mm-hmm. It's just telling us everything that we expected. Um, you know, sometimes with people, uh, I think this maybe happens more with literary works. Uh, I think the go-to example uh, people usually use is: Do you know the book Wide Sargasso Sea? No. Right. Well, it's it's this it's this novel, and it's actually a it's a prequel to uh, Jane Eyre. Oh, okay. But it actually dives in and goes, well, okay. There's a lot of stuff we're told in Jane Eyre about the the woman in the attic, and there's a lot of there are a lot of assumptions in that movie. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. in that novel, yes. But um, mm-hmm. I think it's Susan Reese is the writer of White Sagatsu Sea. But it, that's a book that's got a really good reason to exist, which is like. Oh no! Hang on a second. This mad woman in the attic is another person who has been sidelined and not been given the fair treatment. And if you read, I guess if you read Jane Eyre and then read this other book, you'll feel like, oh, I hadn't considered that. I'm seeing this classic tale, but in a whole new context. And that's what this needed. And we don't have that. We are seeing, you know, the Norwegian thing pretty much happened the way I expected the Norwegian camp infection to have happened. There's nothing mm. exciting. There's nothing. There's no new thing that tells us, oh, wait. You know? Um, it's just boring. It just kind of dovetails into the 
carpenter material and sort of ends. Yeah, it's just, it's an abrupt ending. And the inclusion of the dog just felt like, oh, we we can literally leave no stone unturned. We have to tie the, we have to end this movie where the first one begins, which kind of, this whole movie rubbed me the wrong way, but that was the moment where I was like, you know what, go fuck yourself. Yeah. Yeah. All right, I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this, but let's do the normal. Scale of 1 to 10, what do we give 2011's The Thing? Uh, let's save our guess for last. Matt, you go ahead and go, sir. Is it possible to... Because I've been wrestling with what the hell am I going to score this thing? Because it's not good enough for me to admire it, but it's also not outright awful enough for me to just shit on it, even though I've pretty much done that for the last hour or so. I, I come across as madder on this one than I actually am, because for the most part, what the hell were you people expecting? It's exactly, like, if you watch the trailer, this is, is exactly the movie you think it's going to be. It is not terrible. It's not great. It just exists. Antarctica is a great setting for a horror movie. You're by yourself. You are far from civilization. And you're stuck with a bunch of people with an alien. That's such a great concept. And I walked out of the theater with a shrug. So that's kind of where I'm at with my score. I'm just going to go four on ten. I'll give a classic GC. I think uh, the head scientist is probably the best actor in the movie, except when he just stops acting like a, a normal human being. And I'm sorry, I can't take John McClane's daughter and the guy from Not Another Teen Movie as accomplished scientists. No offense to either of them. They're both very talented people, and they've made pretty well for themselves, all things considered. Um, I was going to give it a five until I realized, you know what? It's too similar. And this was a karma's a bitch, and I'm glad that this movie didn't make enough money to warrant its existence. And enough people caught on to the bullshit. So I'm at a four on ten for The Thing 2011. Four on ten from Mr. Goudreau. Mick! You uh, you've been pretty down on this as well. What do you, what do you feel about the thing 2011? Scale of one to ten. I mean, okay, thinking about this movie like before it came out, and again having revisited it, you know the the Carpenter film is such a classic that any kind of any film that's attempting to prequelize or sequelize it is already setting itself up to fail. Your best case scenario when you've got a sequel to a classic movie that doesn't need a sequel, I think your best case scenario is probably eating Psycho 2, right? Or you've made something that's not a game-changing masterpiece, but is very, very good by any reasonable metric, yeah? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it is possible. You can ignore Psycho 2. It's fine. It's fine. You don't need to see it. But if you see if you see it, you've got a okay, this does interesting things with the material established in the first movie and you know, there's a lot you can there's a lot of positive things you can stress there. And this doesn't have any of that. But it has this problem where because it's a prequel, it can't diverge from what Carpenter does in his film very much. And again, we've talked about how these were the producers of the Dawn of the Dead remake. And however you feel about the Dawn of the Dead remake, um, 
But that's a move that goes in its own direction. And this doesn't do that at all. This is a, um, as a, I think probably a, almost every review noted, this is, this is an imitation, but without the humanity, or without any of the things that make the original interesting. You know, um, it's absorbed the original text, but uh, it's not done anything fun with it. Um, so really, it's getting a two from me. It's just, wow. it's just so dull. It's just so dull, and, and there's no point to it. Um, you know, and it, it's the worst kind of bad film in that it's just mediocre and a bit boring, and it's, it's too, it's too competent to have fun with. You know, you can't uh, mystery science theater three thousand this movie. Yeah, it's just, it's just, it exists in the most boring space possible. It's it's fine. It's you know. Yeah, you know, I'm right in between you guys. Uh, not a better score than Matt's, but not a worse score than Mix. I'm going three out of ten on this. You know, at one point, Kate Lloyd yells, "Burn it!" and you know, I I, I was kind of going with this movie. I gotta say, the first time I saw this, I didn't give it a two negative review. I gave it an okay review. But rewatches do not do this movie justice whatsoever. This is just a boring rehash of what we saw so brilliantly last week. That 1982 movie is so well put together and so well structured, and it's such a great piece of horror science fiction filmmaking. And in 2011, you try to replicate that, and you're just you're not going to go anywhere. And you take a similar story and distill it, and this is how it comes out. And that is. Not a knock on Mary Elizabeth Winstead, on Joel Edgerton. It might be a little bit of a knock on Matthias von Heineken, though, because, you know, obviously this really turned him off, and I'm not going to completely rip him to shreds, but the, he didn't do a good job with this movie. Well, he, decided, um, it he, was decided, a, he decided to do it. Yeah, that's exactly it. He decided to do it. That's a great point. And yeah. it, just, it just comes off as just so bland, and I... I, I'm at a three. I just I, I can't feel exactly one way or the other, but I do recommend people stay the fuck away from it. But Universal isn't staying away from the thing, or at least Hollywood isn't, because as recently as last year, 2020, there was talk that Bloomhouse was going to do a remake of the thing. Matt, we have been pretty outspoken on Bloomhouse on this on this podcast. We did a few. Bloomhouse Pictures with M. Night Shyamalan. Could Bloomhouse do anything interesting with this material? I think they absolutely could. But the question is, are they going to have the right people in place to tell that kind of a story? I trust Jason Blum, for the most part. Ironically, I think Joel Edgerton would be a good choice to direct it. Because uh, he's worked with Bloomhouse before. So he's seen The Gift, which is fucking fantastic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, he's directed a couple movies. Um, uh, the Gift does deal with paranoia quite extensively. Um, but Blumhouse also knows how to recapture classics and make them new. I mean, for God's sake, they just did a remake of The Invisible Man uh, in yeah. the work in 2020. So I'd be hopeful, but not to the point where I would buy tickets opening night. No. Well, here's the – well, I almost said here's the <laughs> thing again. <laughs> yeah, why not? Don't, You've done it so many times at this point. Don't tramp, stop. Tramp. Okay. <laughs> I think if you're going to revisit this material right now – there are a couple of aspects you can play up or explore. 
that might be particularly pertinent to this moment in history. And, well, not to get all gloomy and pandemic-y on us, but we are in the middle of a global pandemic that not everyone is uh, treating with the same gravity. Mm-hmm. And what I want is, uh, I basically, I want a thing sequel where this thing just spreads everywhere and our politicians tell us that, well, we'll just have to learn to live with it. Who thought that there could be a thing from another world remake in 1982? You know, and Carpenter came up with what he came up with. I'm with you guys. You know, I do think it's possible. And Jason Bloom has proven himself. As you said, Matt, The Invisible Man, that is a really good movie. I do highly endorse that film. Can they do it? Yes. Should they do it? Look, Matt, we discussed this with Gremlins. Even though you can do it, should you do it? You know, like, the thing about Gremlins that made it so notorious for me was it almost felt like I was being a naughty kid watching it because I was getting away with something. I watched this thing... And I just feel it being distilled and just not resembling anything that I love so much about that 1982 movie. Could they do it again? Yes. I don't think they should, though. I think they should just let this thing rest. Just let it be in the ice. Don't don't wake it up. Let it just sit there. And we could just go back to that 1982 film, which the three of us highly endorsed last week. Yeah. And we'll just leave it at that. And Mick, maybe one time, maybe one day you'll come on this podcast and we'll actually do a remake that all three of us actually like. <laughs> oh, body snatchers, right? Everyone likes yeah, body maybe, snatchers maybe. Well, I have ideas. I definitely think me, the three of us are going to get together for Escape from New York next year because I do think Matt really wants to do that, at least the first film, and I think that would be a really interesting discussion. But that'll be for next year. Ah, Mick, I appreciate you taking time out discussing these things with us. Um, I was going to get a recommendation. There is a book that came out, well, two years ago now, Astounding. Uh, it's sort of a, well, I want to say biography, but it covers several people, but it's about John W. Campbell, the editor of Astounding Science Fiction and the writer of the short story that these films are all based on. It's fascinating because it talks about Campbell and his relationships with Robert Heinlein and Asimov and L. Ron Hubbard. But it also has some of the scary stuff from John W. Campbell's childhood that inspired his story. And oh. um, the big one is his mother was an identical twin, but her twin seems to have been a psychopath. And she used to sometimes turn up in his house and pretend to be his mother, but just be cruel to him. Just to hurt him and just to fuck with him. Um, so, yeah, yeah, that's a fascinating book. It's astounding. Alec Navalo Lee is the writer of it. Um, but if you're sort of interested in where Campbell's original ideas came from and, you know, that that particular era of pulp sci-fi, this, this book's amazing. And, and it's full of terrifying stories like that. So you recommend that over what we just watched? I'd recommend that over what we just watched, and also again, just I maybe that's maybe that's what any remake should do. Try and think about that paranoia, you know, the idea that this person isn't who you think they are. That that's a terrifying concept if you're a child and your mother is suddenly not your mother. You know. Me and Matt talk about that when we uh, discuss The Shining, which will be posted later on this year. All right, so that's it. We have covered the thing for the uh, the binge movie aftertaste. It's been fun. Matt, sir, you get back and you make sure that your son is not a thing, okay? 
Oh, boy. I think I've already lost that argument. So until next week when, um, well, there's some things on the platter that I don't want to discuss. We'll we'll see what what, what we'll post next week. But until next week, do you really think this podcast is a good idea? Thank you, gentlemen. I know you gentlemen have been through a lot when you find the time, I'd rather not spend the rest of this winter tied to this fucking couch! The Binge Aftertaste is produced by Garrett and Matt. This is an enemy right here. There are no enemies in science, Professor. Only phenomena to study. Voice narration done by Adam. This is pure nonsense. You okay? Yeah. Are you? Edited by Garrett. Well, what do we do? Why don't we just wait here for a little while? See what happens. Every one of you listening to my voice, tell the world. Tell this to everybody wherever they are. Watch the skies everywhere. Clear! Clear. Oh, is it uh, George Van Schlesier, the guy who made The Vanishing, and then made its Hollywood remake, which is not good, but, you know, if nothing else, he has the original. And it's this, it's this, it's, I mean, you know. I remember kind of liking that remake, but I haven't seen it. Probably since it was out, like on TV initially, you know, um, when it made its initial uh, cable debut with Jeff Bridges and Sandra Bullock, I I barely remember it, but I do kind of remember it. I remember. Well, let me say for the record, I absolutely think it's a piece of shit. Really? It's me. Uh, first Jeff Bridges' performance with the film. Is it? I like I said, I don't even remember. So. Mick, I think it's safe to say. I, I think it's safe to say, sir, that Matthias Van Heinegen is no uh, Billy Wilder. Is that? Is that he's he's not even a dick mass. This is the problem. <laughs> he's not. I, God, yeah, I could just say dick mass's name all day long. <laughs> and, and, this, and this network would love you for it. Clear, clear. There's no big, big. Yeah, my God. This movie's got me all tongue-tied. There's no big stars you have to pay. There's no big director. Clear! Clear! What did you guys feel about how this thing ends? Oh, it's... You know what would have been... Go, go ahead, Mick. No, 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 you, you, go, you go first. Clear! Clear! All right, Mick, I would love for you to come on and not have us end on such a downer. Can we, can we make that happen, please? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Well, you know, Escape from New York is such a cheerful movie. <laughs> <laughs> such an upbeat ending. <laughs> Clear! Clear! 
You've been listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network at BingeMedia.net. Support the show by donating on Patreon at Patreon.com slash BingeMedia. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And don't forget... Shut up! I'm wasted. <laughs>